First Peter chapter three, second Peter chapter three, Genesis six and Romans six. But our text is from first Peter chapter three, verses 18 to 22. We're going to finish the chapter tonight. Lord willing. Woohoo. You guys are excited. I can tell. Okay. <clears throat> How many of you were here on Sunday? Raise your hand real high. Okay. You remember the title of the message, How to Suffer Well. <laughs> not, not the most seeker-friendly message, I guess, huh? How to Suffer Well. I would venture to say that not many people in this room have 2 Timothy 3.12 on your refrigerator. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Anyone? Have it on your refrigerator? Can't wait? Got to memorize? Okay. But I think this, this idea, how to suffer well, should be required listening for everybody in the world. Because we saw on Sunday that Jesus, he warned us, he said, look, in this world, if you're part of this world, everyone, yes, you will suffer. In this world, you will have tribulation. He says, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We talked about it. That suffering is a required course on this planet, but misery is optional. We will suffer, but the misery, instead of joy and hopefulness that sometimes creeps in, is optional. And, and Peter said that one of the last things he said to us on Sunday was this, Look, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You see it, verse 17. First Peter 3, verse 17 said, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Again, I'll just do a quick review if I can. We saw on Sunday, look, some of our suffering can be reduced, meaning there's some suffering that is not in the will of God for us, but we, we bring it on ourselves because of our choices and our, our sinful uh, decisions. The way you can reduce your suffering we saw was to uh, repent and replace, right? To turn direction and replace that evil which you have been doing with good which the Lord would have you do. Um, so we saw that suffering can be reduced, but the main gist of our text uh, then and tonight is this. Look, suffering, if it's in the will of God, can be redeemed, not just reduced from the unnecessary stuff, but the stuff that remains after you've uh, repented and replaced. The stuff that remains can be redeemed. Suffering. I don't know if you get if you've thought about this, but this is one of those philosophical things, and uh, it, it it makes sense for me when, once it once it clicks. Did, have you thought about this? That death is always the first necessary step to resurrection. We, we talk a lot about resurrection, but it's kind of hard to have a resurrection without a death, right? Death is always the first necessary step in resurrection. Let me encourage you as we start this, this evening, the death that you're experiencing could be the first necessary step in a resurrection, either in your own life or better yet, for others that are around you. Right? We talked a little bit about that on Sunday. Where if you do it right, your suffering becomes this, a stage. Uh, your persecution becomes a pulpit. Because people watch you and they, 
They look and see how you react to this suffering or this persecution. Your mistreatment could become your microphone to a lost and dying world. you get it? You track on with me? If you're not now, it's really going to get rough. Um, <laughs> how, do, how do we, just to, again, to review a little bit more. How did we figure that um, you can redeem your suffering? Three words. Be steady, be ready, and be clear. You remember? We saw those from the verses preceding. Be steady, meaning don't freak out when trouble comes. Don't worry, but instead worship. Because it says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, right? Meaning, bring Him into that trouble. Worship Him, and you will discover that He can bring tranquility and peace even into the midst of, of the, the chaos, the, the storm that you're in, okay? So be steady, but also be ready. We saw that uh, verse 15, I believe, to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Not only be steady, don't freak out, but if you don't freak out, people are going to go, wow, that's amazing. How come you're not freaking out? That's when you should be ready to give an answer, a reason. The reason that I'm not freaking out about autism was the ex- uh, example I gave you is that I know there's coming a time, according to the Word of God, when my son and I will have a, a conversation, when we'll, we'll enjoy one another's company on a completely different level. Um, so to be steady, you worship. To be ready to give that answer, you get in the Word and then the last thing he said on Sunday was be clear, meaning have a clear conscience. So worship, get in the word, but also have your walk match your worship and your word. Okay? If you haven't figured it out yet, basically we're right in the middle of this where Peter is extolling the virtues of suffering. Again, it's a weird concept, but that's what he's doing. Extolling the virtues of of suffering. Your suffering can lead to another's salvation. Your risk can lead to another's rescue. Your hurt can lead to another's healing. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? By His wounds, we are healed. Now, Peter says, in beginning of verse 18... Let me give you an example. No, better yet, let me give you the example. Nobody suffers better than Jesus. The title of the message tonight is Jesus Suffered Well. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Just like you guys are, he's saying to the the people who are being persecuted. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. It wasn't fair to him either that he might bring us to God. Peter says, look, Christ suffered. He didn't deserve it, but he kept his eye on the prize. You guys have heard me say when it says when the scriptures say that Jesus kept his eye on the prize, you know, who was that us when he endured the cross, despising the shame? He kept his eye on the prize. He he was uh, he finished the race. Well, it's because he loved us and he wanted to bring us to God. Christ suffered. He didn't deserve it. He kept his eye on the prize to bring sinners like you and me into fellowship with a holy God. Right? The veil was torn in two. The invitations, as it were, were sent out to a world of sinners saying, come in to the holy of holies. Fellowship with a holy God. This is Peter's point, guys. None of it would be possible were it not for Christ's willingness to suffer. And suffer well. 
The context tonight is this. Are you willing to suffer that others might be brought into God's presence? I'm going to ask you to, to pray, especially if you start to hear me, get, if, if you start to get confused by what I'm saying. Pray tonight, if nothing else, that we keep the context of the message. See, tonight, as again, as, as we begin to look at it, I think you're going to see, I feel like it's a minefield, the text of possible distractions, of unanswerable questions, of theological positions. And I was thinking, you guys are blessed tonight to have a teacher like me. Here's, here's what I mean. You're blessed to have a teacher who is so befuddled by this text that all I can do is cling to the context. That's all I can do. And say, the context is redeemable suffering. Redeeming through suffering. Here's your outline. You ready? Jesus was the victim who suffered. And we'll see that Jesus became the victor who is sovereign. And finally, we're going to see Jesus is the vehicle of salvation. It's all about redeeming through suffering. Look at verse, or look at verse 18 and you'll see it's very clear Jesus was the victim. He was a willing victim. But he was a victim in the flesh of suffering. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, victim, but made alive by the Spirit. No doubt, don't you think Peter is remembering his own eyewitness account of Jesus on the cross? He saw with his own eyes Peter or Jesus suffering. Don't forget, Peter, the author, the human author of this epistle, has an image, no doubt, burned in his mind of one who is suffering unjustly for someone else. Three and a half years he'd spent and he'd never seen his master sin. But here he sees his master arrested, whipped, beaten, mocked, spit upon, crucified, murdered. And don't you think there were three days, a span of three days when Peter... If nothing had changed, Peter would have ended verse 18 much more abruptly. Look at it. He would have gone like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Period. There were three days when the story ended there. Three days where, for all Peter knew, that was it. The end of the story. But ever since that first Easter Sunday... Peter has been able to add the, these last six words, but he was made alive by the Spirit. Maybe that's what you he need to hear tonight. Again, this is my prayer that the Lord would speak to the people who, who He's trying to speak to and who might be hurting. Maybe you need to just hear that simple idea. Look, after death comes resurrection. After suffering comes salvation. There doesn't have to be a period at the end of your verse 18 without those last six words. After death comes resurrection. Death to your own plans and resurrection to God's plans for you. Jesus was a willing victim, Peter said, to rescue us. Our salvation came through His suffering. Our healing came by way of His hurt. Our rescue came through His rejection. If God has assigned you tonight to suffering, 
I hope you're beginning to see it's not for His entertainment. It's because He has deemed you worthy to be part of His redemptive story. And redemption includes rejection. Salvation includes suffering. If you are a victim tonight, you need to remember that Jesus was the ultimate victim of injustice, but He went from being a willing victim to our next thing, to a winning victor. Because it says, the end of verse 18, He was made alive by the Spirit. Here we go. By whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once divine, the divine long-suffering waited for the days in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Is that perfectly clear to you guys? Is that self-explanatory? Can we move on? No? <laughs> All right, turn to, to 2 Peter chapter 3. You, we won't be long here, but I just... This isn't really going to teach you anything. I just want to show you a bit of irony. 2 Peter... Chapter 3, look at verse 15. It says, And considering, this is Peter, the guy writing, right? He writes both of these epistles. Considering that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. <laughs> what Peter says is, uh, Guys, you know, Paul is a great brother. You know, he's used by the Spirit. It's awesome. But. I'm just going to confess to you, sometimes it's hard for me to understand what Paul's saying. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> Joe Foch says, the pastor in Philadelphia, he's like, yeah, um, Peter, that's kind of like the, the pot calling the kettle black. Because you look at these verses here and you're like, huh? That's, that's what he's saying is that the, the scholars call this, and you can go back to our, our text, First Peter chapter 3, the, the scholars call this one of the most perplexing portions of Scripture. Um, and I'm really happy about that because it makes me not feel quite so dumb to look at this and, and try to weed through it, wade through it. This is one of those portions that you can read 15 different commentaries and get 17 different opinions. I'm going to do my best to lead us through this, clinging, like I said, to the context and leading you guys to be Bereans. You know what I mean, right? That means you guys have to go home and decide for yourself. Which leaves me off the hook. I love it. It says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh and he was made alive by the Spirit. Here, let's, let's begin. Verse 19. By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Well, let's, let's back up and, and just... From that, figure out, okay, what do we know? What at least, what are the things that we can deduce from what he's saying? I think it's fair to say that sometime after the cross, Peter is saying that Jesus goes and preaches to these, these spirits in prison. Now, it's probably important for you to know, it's definitely important for you to know this, where it says preaches, that word is caruso. It's not the kind of preaching that I'm doing now where I'm trying to uh, enlighten you on some things and, and maybe uh, challenge you to come to some conclusions, trying to convince you of things. This is preaching like proclamation, like declaration. This is just saying, this is the way it is. Right? That's the kind of preaching that Jesus is going to do. We're going to see that in a second. But then, who, who are these spirits in prison? 
Um, this is where it starts to get all crazy and you get different people's opinions. Some people think that when it says spirits, it's referring to uh, people as opposed to actual spirits. Um, I'm going to give you my best interpretation of what I understand. And there's problems with, with all of these, these uh, different ideas, but this is, this is the one that seems to make the most sense to me. Um, it says that he's preaching to spirits in prison, okay, after, after the, uh, the, the death on the cross. He preaches to spirits in prison. One other thing that we know about them is that they, they have done some kind of disobedience back in the days of Noah. Do you see that? There's some kind of uh, form of disobedience that they're, they're performing or participating in in the days of Noah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. And if you don't like this particular context, then you're welcome to any of the other 15. Genesis 6. This seems to me pretty parallel to our reading tonight. Genesis 6, verse 1, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves for all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, mighty or men of renown. Now look, verse 5. This is why we think it's in context with what Peter's saying. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry, was sorry, excuse me, that, that he had made man on the earth, and, it, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made him, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Picture painted here where God says, I've had it. We're going to start over. And it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you guys know the rest of that story, right? He commissions, he commands Noah to build this ark so he can wipe out the earth. Now, how in the world does this tie in with our text? I'm not completely sure, but here's, here's, here's what I'm thinking. And again, this is this is not. I'm not the only guy by any means. I'm I'm uh, piggybacking on other folks. Many say, and it makes sense to me that when it's talking about disobedient spirits in First Peter three, that you can find them here in verse two and four, where it says the sons of God. That that was a common phrase used for angels, particularly, obviously, in this case, fallen angels, so that he'd be talking about demons. And apparently these demons were among the elite, meaning these were some of the, the biggest, baddest kind of angels. And if you take this view, then verses 1 through 4, talk about how these angels, um, their disobedience was sleeping with human women, creating a race of giants. And if you're like, well, that's just kind of wacky, weird, I don't know about that. You might want to check out Jude uh, verse 6, and it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains, prison, right, under darkness of the judgment of the great day. 
as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, that is, things that they shouldn't be going after, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. I don't have time to fully explain it, and I'm not sure that I fully get it, but this to me is at least a reasonable tie-in and explanation of where Peter's going here. If this is true, this provides a fascinating study from that perspective. Think about this. If there really was this this deal where angels left their proper domain and, and slept with human women, then this could be Satan's first large-scale plan to derail God's plan of redemption. You guys remember back in Genesis 3, God's passing out the curses, and He says to the woman, your seed will bring redemption. And He's talking to the woman who normally women don't have seed. He says, and you will crush His head. He will crush His head, uh, but the, the serpent will bruise His heel. This, this concept of that, that there's this cosmic battle going on for the redemption of your souls that starts way back in Genesis. And that in Genesis 6, uh, Satan moves his chess piece and says, here's something I'll do. I'll have these angels sleep with these human women and I'll corrupt the whole, the whole lineage, the whole race, so that everybody will be confused. There won't be a chance that, that uh, this, this Messiah, this Redeemer that, that God is speaking of will ever be born. Again, it's, I know it's, it's hard and weird and it's hard to, to wrap your head around, but if that's true, it's interesting to think of all of the Old Testament and all of history kind of as a play-by-play of a cosmic chess game. You see it? Right, Genesis 3, God moves. Genesis 6, the devil moves. All throughout the Old Testament. All the times when, um, well, when, when Pharaoh wanted to kill out kill off all of the the Jewish boys, could it be that Satan was saying, ah, here's a move. If I get rid of all of the the Jewish lineage, they'll never be a Messiah. If all of that is true, imagine, if you will, these fallen angels who have been banished to to chains, to prison after the, the, the flood, right? Imagine them in prison getting updates on the chess game over the intercom from the commander Satan. Okay, just roll with me here. Imagine one day in the spring of 33 A.D. The voice comes over the intercom. You boys will be glad to know we've done it. Checkmate. We just got those humans to murder their own Messiah. We got them to crucify their own Christ. There are such fools, so easily defeated. Hold that thought. Now, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and read with me verse 19. I want to show you one other idea, a parallel thread. Again, you've got to keep your thinking caps on here. Verse 19, it says, "...by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison..." who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Again, it's hard for me to keep track of everything, but if I'm, if I'm tracking right, 
Peter alludes here, don't you see where it says the divine long-suffering? I see him alluding to the patience of God. Have you guys ever noticed it's in the Old Testament? It's Peter talks about it in his epistles too. The divine long-suffering of God and how it tends to make the righteous look foolish. Meaning, remember how, it looked, how foolish it made Noah look? It, the divine long-suffering, his patience, the fact that he waits so long to, to act in vengeance makes suffering saints look stupid. Right? 120 years, Noah built that boat. How many times do you think people were like walking by, dude, how's that boat coming? <laughs> Not a drop of rain. Can you imagine how, much, how many times on the 119th year, guys walking by like, hey, how's that boat coming, Noah? Good for you. Yeah, you go ahead, build that boat. Just don't ask me to get on it with you. Idiot. There's no rain. It hasn't, hasn't rained here. See, the theme, whether it's Noah's suffering ridicule, or Jesus suffering death, this, the theme, our context is the same. Suffering precedes the salvation of the saved, and suffering of the saved precedes the destruction of the damned. You see where I'm going? And during that interval, and it's so long, the saints feel stupid, and the sinners feel smug. Maybe that's your application tonight. You are in Noah's spot. Meaning you're doing your best to be obedient. And the more obedient you are, the more stupid you feel. Because people around you are going, yeah, that God you serve? Right. How can you let all these things happen? Being so smug. See, This isn't from a sanctified view, but it may, it may resonate with some of you. Sometimes this, doesn't it feel like the Lord is so stinking patient that you look really dumb? <laughs> right? Because He says, look, I want you to do this. I want you to build a boat. Okay, I'll build a boat. Okay, I'd, I'm going to build a boat, but I'd appreciate it if you'd come in the next three months. Well, it's going to be 120 years. <laughs> right? Now, if you're in that spot and you're feeling like, Lord... It's taking you so long. Your divine long-suffering is making me suffer long. Look at verse 19 again. Because this is where it all hopefully starts to, to make sense. Verse 19, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Again, that word preached is caruso. It's a herald. It's to proclaim. Again, it's not preached like, hey, I'm trying to convince you of something. It's preached like, Proclaim, I am making a proclamation. You can take it or leave it, but this is the proclamation. So, imagine those same fallen angels. Remember in prison, they're listening to the intercom, playing cards in prison, whatever. They're in their cells. They're getting occasional updates from the commander. The last they heard was pretty good news. The Messiah is dead. The humans are so stupid. The Christ is crucified. They're thinking, look, it's just a matter of time before our commander comes and releases us from this prison so we can get back to doing what we do. Stealing, killing, destroying. And no one's going to stop us. That's the last they heard. And then, boom! Jesus comes busting in, says, hello there. I've got an update for you. I'm alive. 
I conquered death. I thought you might be interested in that. That's, that's the context, as best I can tell, that Peter is saying. No matter what you think, whether or not you believe the thing about Genesis 6, he went and proclaimed something to some spirits that were disobedient. Look, here's the point, and don't miss it. If my little pea brain is following the text right, you can rest assured that some sometime after his crucifixion, Jesus busted in and effectively said to the biggest, baddest angels in human history to date, that's, that's what he did. To put it much in much nicer terms, the victim became the victor. The victim became the victor. What's the moral of the story? Just like Noah, just like Jesus, you may look like a victim. You may feel like a victim. You may, in fact, in some circumstances, in some ways, be the victim. But if you trust in Him, you are in actuality, whether it takes 120 years or a couple days, you're not the victim. You're a victor. Let me put it in crash terms again. And that means you can say to your greatest enemy, is poverty your enemy tonight? Come on, say it with me. <laughs> is, is sickness your enemy? You guys, isn't this what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? Death, where is your sting? Isn't that the biggest enemy there is? Death? And Paul says, you know what? I'm not all that scared of death now that I think about it. It's really a deep and wonderful message if you get it. You don't have to walk around the victim of your circumstances, but realize in the long run you are guaranteed to be the victor. Because of Jesus and what He's done. and But here, we bring it back into context again. The victory, that victory of yours that Jesus has secured over death, over poverty, over sickness, whatever it is, that wouldn't have happened if He had not been willing to be the victim. You get it? If He had not been willing to be, un, to, to be treated unfairly, if He would not been willing to be treated to be reviled, if He would not been willing to return blessing for cursing, to die to self. Y'all, what does that tell you? That's, that victory comes when you are willing to make yourself a victim. And I don't mean the me, poor is me victim. I mean the noble one who says, I'm going to return blessing for reviling. Okay? So, uh, let's, let's, I'm going to give you the, the outline sort of as we read it. First, we saw Jesus was the victim who suffered, right? For Christ also suffered, verse 18, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. But then we saw Jesus is not just the victim who suffered, but much more importantly, he's the victor who is sovereign. It says, because he was made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And lastly, 
Jesus is the vehicle of salvation. Because it says he's speaking of the ark here, right? It says uh, for into verse 20 or middle of verse 20, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Who were the eight souls? Well, there was Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Okay? So it says, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Verse 21, there's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the flesh, of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You guys all got it? No need to exposit that? No. <laughs> it's just more, more and more like, wow, Lord, you're blowing my mind here. Another minefield in this, this text. Um, at first glance, if you look at it, doesn't it look like it says baptism saves us? Does that mean all the people are right to say, you can't be saved unless you're baptized into our church? Um, this should help you a lot. Look at that word antitype. That means something that is formed after some pattern. Uh, it's something that resembles another thing, its counterpart. The antitype, but it may be an easier word to understand, is picture. It's a picture of something that points to something else. Okay? So then, the ark, it says, is an antitype. It's the Old Testament picture of salvation. Have you ever thought about that? That the, the ark is the Old Testament picture of salvation. Think about it. Lots of warning, 120 years of warning, the long-suffering of God, destruction coming, the, every nail that that Noah put into that boat was saying destruction's coming. And there's only one way out. The ark. By believing God, by forsaking your old life, if you were, if you were listening to, to Noah's, whether it was silent or actually had words, to his preaching, it would have been this. Look, by believing God, forsaking your old life, entering into the vehicle that I'm making here by trusting God to deliver you even though the storm rages. Does any of that sound familiar? That's Jesus. Jesus is the vehicle of salvation. Lots of warning. He's given us 2,000 years now of warning. The long-suffering of God that's so long-suffering that Peter actually in his epistle will go, I know, I get it. It's hard to understand how the long-suffering of God, how He can just continue on and let this go. Lots of warning. The long-suffering of God. The idea that destruction is coming and the idea that there's only one way out. The same thing that Noah preached, any one of us can and should be preaching to our neighbors, look, destruction is coming and there's only one way out. By believing God, by forsaking your old life, by entering into the vehicle that He's provided and trusting God to deliver you even though the storm rages, that's the one way out. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Me. Apart from Jesus, all men will perish. But if they'll enter in, they'll live. It's as simple as that. Now... Turn to Romans chapter 6 and I'll show you. I don't think there's, there's any chance that Peter is speaking 
to saying that salvation by water is the thing that's that's uh, saving you. That baptism by water is the thing that's saving you. Because Peter is saying baptism not into water, but into Christ. If you'll be baptized into Christ and into His death, if you'll enter into the vehicle and His resurrection, then He is that which will deliver you from the judgment that is to come. Look at Romans 6 and see it. Uh, Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And these coming up are the verses that we always use in regards to baptism. Or do you not know that as many of us as who were baptized into Christ Jesus, doesn't say who were baptized by water, right? Who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The idea is, look, just like the ark rescued eight people from, from righteous judgment, just a very few, and gave them a brand new beginning, so too Jesus rescues you from God's righteous judgment and gives you a brand new beginning. You guys realize that, right? The flood is... as Horrific as it was, when it was done, everything was brand new. Water baptism, then, is a picture, an object lesson of what Jesus has already done in you. Let me put it this way. The old you is dead and at the bottom of the sea. That's what I tell people when we, when we baptize. I'm like, look, this is just a picture, but this is an awesome picture. And sometimes I'll ask, I'll say, what, what? What's in what part of you do you want to just leave here at the bottom of the, this pool? The old you is dead at the bottom of the sea, already judged by God. But because you're in Jesus, the new you comes out of the ark with a clean conscience, walking in newness of life. So let's bring this back one more time into context. It's all about suffering well, guys. Not only did Jesus, by suffering well, go from victim to victor over the rebellious, right? And He was able to, to say to those, those spirits, but also He became the vehicle by which men can be rescued from destruction if they'll just step in the boat. Now, I know, again, it's for me at least... Maybe you guys are much smarter and it was very easy for you. I, I hope it was. For, for me, at least, it's a challenge to, to grasp it all. But then here's the biggest question. This is the question we always ask. How does this relate to me? What are my marching orders from this, Lord? You ready? Here's my marching orders for you. From the Lord, I believe. If you're suffering right now, Suffer well. Do it right. Do it in a way that would glorify Him. If you do, you're guaranteed to go from victim to victor. And you're guaranteed to make to be in the position of vehicle for the lost and dying that are around you. To transport someone from where they are, lost, about ready to drown in a sea of destruction 
to a place where they can be brand new. They can be clean. They can have a, a, a brand new conscience. If you're suffering, would you be willing to suffer well? Last thing, just as we go real quick. Just a reminder. That means then to be steady. This is back from last Sunday. Be steady. Don't freak out. Be ready. Stay in the Word. Ask the Lord what, how you would answer someone when they ask you for that hope that's within you. And be clear. Have a clear conscience. And it's interesting to me that he talks about baptism and then he says, hey, it's a clear conscience. Maybe, maybe that's what you need to do tonight. Confess your sin and, and come before Him and ask Him to make you not just brand new because you're already that way judicially, but to, to help you to understand that He really is able to, to give you a brand new, clear conscience. Then look at verse 22. Who has gone, speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subjects subject to Him. Basically, I think this is one last reminder. Look, suffering is not the end. Suffering is not the end. If, if you've given your life to God, if you've trusted Him with it, suffering has a glorious result. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. You see it all through this book, First Peter. Because he says specifically, verse 22 again, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. That means angels are now subject to Jesus, right? No doubt some of the same angels that were tormenting him as he was on the cross paying for your sins. Right? Maybe some of the same fallen angels that mocked Noah. They are subject to Him. Then it says authorities are subject to Him. Think about what that would mean to, to the uh, recipients of this letter who are being burned alive by Nero. What he's saying is, don't forget, the one who went before you, every single one of them is going to bow before your king. Every single one, including Nero. And it says powers. That, that would include philosophical powers, military powers, powerful atheistic minds. Maybe, again, you're being ridiculed or, or mocked by those who seem much more powerful than you. Peter, said, Peter says, look, Jesus suffered, but now they are subject to Him. Every knee will bow. Every knee will confess. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, who was once victim is now the victor. And I pray and trust that everyone in this room, He's also your vehicle to a righteous God. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for being with us. <clears throat> I thank You that You're able, Lord, to teach. I'm trusting that You, that you have, that You are. Lord, um, I pray that anything that is not of you, Lord, you just let, let kind of fall away and we wouldn't even remember it. You'd erase it from the tape, whatever, Lord. But I ask, Lord, that the things that you're speaking to us, and we know that, that you are, pray that we would not just be uh, hearers of your word, but doers. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to action. 
Thank you, Lord, that we get to be part of your plan of redemption. Pray that you'd make us brave, strong. You'd make us ready and steady and clear. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.